Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 37, My Father's Son. In this episode, you're going to hear part one of a debate over the nature of Jesus Christ. You'll hear opening arguments and rebuttals in this episode, and then in part two, in the next episode, um, you'll hear cross-examination, Q&A, and and closing arguments. Here in my intro to this episode, I won't say more than that. You'll get those details filled in when you listen to me introduce my guests in a few minutes. But what I do want to say is thank you to those of you who've been praying for me in my attempt to lose weight for my upcoming powerlifting competition. But in holding myself accountable to those I'm asking for prayers, I've got to confess that for about a week now, I've really slacked. I don't know if it was because I was weary or because I was discouraged by how slowly, if if at all, (laughs) the weight was coming off. But whatever the reason, for a week or more, I didn't count calories at all, and and I overate a lot. Um, I haven't been weighing myself. I've probably put on a few pounds, which, of course, is going to make it even more difficult to get down to the weight I'd hoped to. But today, I'm back on the wagon. Um, I haven't been slacking in my training. So I still might have a chance, particularly if I'm even more diligent than I was before this past week. At the very least, I'm certain I can get down to the weight class I've been competing in, which is still a lot better than competing in the unlimited weight class. <laughs> Boy, that that pit me up against guys way bigger and stronger than I am, which, you know, wouldn't be very fun. So anyway, please keep praying for me if you're so led by God, um, and I'll continue to hold myself accountable to you all, letting you know how I'm doing. Now, just another brief comment or two. Last episode, I thanked you that the The Apologetics Facebook page was up to 100 fans beside myself. Um, As of right now, that's up to 115, so just in the past week, 15 of you clicked that like button, and I want to thank you so much for that. I also mentioned last episode that I was something like 500 downloads away from from my show having been downloaded 10,000 times. Well, as of yesterday, the number of downloads has surpassed even that milestone, and at 10,890, it's quickly approaching 11,000 downloads. Uh, Now, I'm astonished, and uh, I can't tell you how much it means to me that you would consider my show worth listening to, um, and that God has given me such a great opportunity to infect you with the same passion for theology and for apologetics that I have. Now, in addition to the number of Facebook fans and downloads, I've recently received a number of very encouraging comments. I received an email saying, your podcast has been a blessing to me. The last few weeks of listening to your show has encouraged me to begin really taking my faith more seriously. A listener commented on one of my posts on Facebook saying that he's gotten his whole family hooked to my show, so thanks so much for those comments. Another emailer thanked me for my podcast and told me it's great, and in particular he enjoyed my interviews with Dr. Glenn Peoples on the topic of physicalism, and he said to keep up the good work. Another emailer and fellow powerlifter, and somebody who attends the same church as Dr. James White, (laughs) told me that he started listening when I interviewed Dr. White, and he told me he likes the show. So thank you for that. And Cy Ten Bruggen Kate, whom I interviewed way back in episode three and, and who might appear on my show in the near future again, told me that he really enjoyed my interviews with Dr. White and with Jamin Hubner. And he told me that my pushing back when answers aren't clear or satisfactory is something he finds is rare in most interviewers. And he told me that, uh, that I had done a good job. So to all of you who've emailed me or commented on Facebook, I just want to thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. It blesses me greatly. You have no idea. At times, it's even brought me nearly to the point of tears. So, um, anyway, well, that's all I wanted to say. I won't take up much more of your time except to play the next promo in my rotation uh, for Stand to Reason with Greg Kokel. <laughs> 
This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. Definitely check out Greg's show. Uh, I definitely very highly recommend it. Um, and call in with your questions. Greg is very gracious and kind on the air when, when he's talking with lesson, listeners, even when he disagrees with them. At least I think he is. Then again, maybe I'm biased. Uh, you can listen to the radio program live on the air every Sunday, 2 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time um, on 740 KBRT. Um, if you're in the California area, or you can listen online. Um, I've got a link in my show notes. Um, and also the, the, the show is uh, archived in podcast form, each episode published to the podcast the day after it airs. So um, you can check that out at uh, str.org. Um, and I guess with that, let's move into the debate. Heart over my Yes, I'm my father's son. I'm to do as my father's done. As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Tuesday, April 5th, 2011. But whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the The Apologetics Podcast for this very important debate over the nature of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm going to introduce my guests and explain the topic and format of today's debate, and then I'll open in prayer. But first, I want to speak briefly to you who are listening. This show isn't broadcast live, and my guests aren't debating in person before a live audience, so I don't need to ask you to remain silent. I don't even ask, need to ask you to turn your cell phones off. But what I do want to do is encourage you uh, to listen carefully and consider what my guests are going to say, uh, say to you today. And like the Bereans whom Luke called noble-minded in Acts 17.11, examine the scriptures yourselves to see which of my guests' words are true. This is absolutely vital because I believe that my guests and I, as well as all of you listening, to one extent or another, we all believe what we believe because of the traditions we bought into. While some of us, like one of my guests and I at least, esteem certain traditions more highly than perhaps others in that we respect and affirm certain historic creeds and the like, the reality is that we all have our traditions, even when it comes to this the question that we're going to be debating today. As Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries has often said, everyone has traditions, and those most blinded by them are those who do not believe they have any. But if we're going to be the true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and truth, as Jesus said, are the kind of worshipers his Father seeks in John 4.23, then we need to test our traditions in light of the scriptures which Paul calls theopneustos, breathed out by God in 2 Timothy 3.16. This is not to say tradition is inherently bad. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.2 that he praises his readers because they remember him in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as he delivered them. And certainly we shouldn't be cavalier and take lightly or dismiss outright what Christians much brighter, much more studied, and who spent much more time than we have in, in the Word and in prayer, uh, what they have said throughout the centuries. But what the Bible condemns is when we subject the Scriptures to our traditions rather than the other way around, such that we reject what the Word of God teaches in favor of what we've been taught by tradition. As Paul warned in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men rather than according to Christ. So let us all, those who are participating in the debate today and those who are listening, endeavor to obey what Paul commanded, being moved by the Holy Spirit to command what he did. 
Let us refuse to be taken captive to our traditions, and instead let us be captivated by the word of God, conforming our traditions to it. For in John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said that if we continue in his word, then we are truly his disciples, and we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now, with that exhortation out of the way, I'd like to introduce my guests who will be debating one another today. Uh, my friend, Michael Burgos, appeared in episode 11 of this podcast back in September to discuss oneness Pentecostalism with me. Mike is the creator of the website Grassroots, Grassroots Apologetics, which you can access at either grassrootsapologetics.org or onenesspentecostal.net. Although his ministry is perhaps primarily aimed at oneness Pentecostalism, he's written 30 or, 30 or more articles on a variety of topics and has authored the soon-to-be-released book, Give an Answer, of which I had the privilege to be editor, and let's hope I didn't ruin it. <laughs> he's a member of Northwest Hills Community Church in Torrington, Connecticut, whose website is at northwesthillschurch.org, and he's a father of five children and the husband of one wife. Mike, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks. Debating Mike today is James Anderson, creator of the website Evidential Faith, available at evidentialfaith.com, which describes itself as a ministry dedicated to defending truths about the existence of God, truth, the Bible, Jesus Christ, and the oneness of God. James studied theology at Jackson College of Ministries, which I believe was formerly Pentecostal Bible Institute, and he studied religion at Liberty University. He is a member of New Life United Pentecostal Church in Mount Vernon, Texas, whose website is available at mtvernonupc.com. And he and his wife have two sons. James, thank you as well for being here today. Hey, thank you very much, Chris. It's a privilege. Now, with those introductions out of the way, let me explain today's debate. Unlike similar debates, which typically discuss the broader doctrine of the Trinity, the proposition of today's debate is this. The Son personally existed, pre-existed the incarnation with the Father. Michael Burgos affirms the proposition and James Anderson denies. Mac and J- uh, Mike and James have agreed to the following format. Mike will begin with a 20-minute opening, uh, affirming the proposition, followed by James, who will give his 20-minute opening, denying it. Mike will give his 15-minute rebuttal, at which point James will give his 15-minute rebuttal. At that point, we'll enter into a period of cross-examination, beginning with James, who will have five minutes to ask Mike questions, followed by five minutes during which Mike will ask James questions, and then we'll repeat that a second time. Um, after cross-examination, I will have 10 minutes to pose questions to Mike, which have been submitted to me by others as well as ones I formulated myself, followed by 10 minutes during which I will likewise pose such questions to James. At that point, we'll wrap up with James presenting his 10-minute closing statement, followed by Mike's 10-minute closing. Um, now, there may be a couple of places that we pause with putting to take a break, but you won't need to do any fast-forwarding or anything. I'll, I'll edit those breaks out. So in a moment, I'm going to open in prayer, but I do want to say one last thing, and I, I thank you, Mike and James, for bearing with my long-windedness. <laughs> as my listeners know, and as both Mike and James know, um, I am also a Trinitarian and affirm the debate proposition. Um, and as I've said, Mike and I are friends, but what I'm, going to, what I'm going to do with the best of my ability is play the role of a neutral debate moderator, holding both Mike and James firmly to the time limits we've set forth. Furthermore, because few questions were submitted to me to ask Mike and James, I've formulated a number of questions myself, and, I, and I've really done my best to prepare difficult questions for each of them. Now, I'm human and, and therefore not perfect, but I hope that Mike and James and those of you listening, in the end, will all feel as though I'd been as fair as possible and treated them as equally as possible, as possible given the fact that I'm kind of biased both doctrinally and relationally. If in the end you don't feel that that's the case, I just ask that you'd forgive me and let the arguments presented today speak for themselves. So with all that out of the way, I'm going to open in prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for bringing us together today to discuss this very important question, a question that relates to your very nature and the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that all of us here want to be worshipers in truth, as I mentioned before, and we want to test our traditions in light of the truth that is revealed in your word. And So I pray that you would help us by revealing truth to us, opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts, um, help us to hold fast to that which is true and to reject that which we've believed but which is false. 
Also, Lord, I've listened to other debates um, where both participants become obstinate and angry or, or they're loud and obnoxious and they misrepresent each other. I just want to ask you, Lord, that you would help us today to be calm and sober, kind and respectful to one another. And also, Lord, in Proverbs 21.1, it says that you turn the king's heart where you wish. And I pray that you would do the same for us. If, if, if our heart's inclination is to speak out in anger or, in, um, or, or to misrepresent each other's position or anything like that, Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts uh, like you moved the kings so that we would um, treat each other the way that is uh, according to our calling as professing Christians. Above all, finally, Lord, I just pray that you would bring yourself glory in what is spoken today by all of us speaking. Uh, and I pray that you would draw we who participate and those who are listening closer to you and to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Amen. So, Mike, I've got a timer in my hand. I'm going to set it to uh, 20 minutes. Hold on just one second. I wish I'd prepared this, but I didn't. This will just take a second. It's actually my Windows 7 phone, an app called Easy <laughs> Timer. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to set it for 20 minutes. And I'll let you know, Mike, when you've got one minute left. So if you're ready, please begin with your opening statement. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for hosting and moderating this debate. And I'd like to thank you, uh, Mr. Anderson, for your participation. Tonight's debate is one that is treading on an issue of eternal significance. The validity of our two different faiths hinges on our mutually exclusive understanding of the Son of God. We are both, I believe, sincere in our doctrine, but the only thing that counts is whether or not as you said, scripture correlates with what we believe. Now, I would be doing you, James, a disservice if I did not state this as clearly as I possibly can. Today, it will be demonstrated that the Son of God existed with the Father in a personal way prior to the Incarnation. And the oneness doctrine of God is unscriptural and therefore must be abandoned. And I don't say that to be harsh or offensive, But instead, I say that as a plea to you and my oneness friends to come to the true and saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to direct your attention to the uh, epistle to the Philippians, the second chapter, starting at verse 5. And I'll read through to verse 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in this text, the Apostle commends to Christians the attitude that was present in the Son of God. It is indisputable that this text is referring to the Son as Paul differentiates Jesus the Son from God the Father within verse 6 and verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11 also demonstrate a subject-to-object distinction. Paul tells us that the Son existed in the form of God. The verb that is translated existed is the participle, and it is in the present tense. 
Paul here gives no indication of a time in which the Son began to exist in the form of God. And because the Word tells us that the Son existed in the form of God prior to his existence in the likeness of men, we see that Paul's usage assumes an eternal existence. He was existing in the form of God, the Morphetheu, literally God's form. Well, what is God's form? God's form is that which makes God God. God's form is that set of attributes that makes God what he is. If I were to ask my opponent, Mr. Anderson, to describe for me the form of a shovel, what would he tell me? Well, he would go on to describe those things that make a shovel a shovel, a long handle, a metal blade, and so forth. The form of a shovel is that which distinguishes a shovel from, say, a spade or a hammer. And therefore, God's form is that which distinguishes God from all else. And it was in that form that the Son was existing in perfect co-equality with God. The text goes on to tell us that although the Son was existing in God's form, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Obviously, the Apostle is not telling us that Jesus, the Son, did not consider equality with himself. Now, remember, Paul's commending an attitude of humility. Now, consider this for a moment. Is it humble to not consider yourself equal with God if you really are not? Well, that would just be the reality of the situation. That would not be humility. But if you exist in God's form and have equality with God, and you do not cleave to it, that would be the very essence of humility, and that is what we see in this text. We follow uh, that same text and we read that the Son emptied himself. Notice it was the Son who existed in God's form who had emptied himself. It was the Son who did the action of the verb. The two instrumental participles, Laban and Genomenos, inform us how it was that the Son emptied himself. And that was by being born in the likeness of men. And this is obviously a plain indication of the Incarnation. It was the Son who did not consider equality with God, and it was the Son who'd emptied himself, and it was the Son who was born in the likeness of sinful men. Ideas, unrealized thoughts in the mind of God, and other inanimate entities are impersonal and do not engage in these kinds of activities. And so this text demands a living, volitional, and conscious Son who existed with God the Father prior to the Incarnation. Now, should my opponent attempt to argue that this text is speaking of the Son after the Incarnation, he would also have to affirm the idea that the Son was incarnated twice. Should Mr. Anderson attempt to say that this text is speaking only of the Father prior to the Incarnation, then he would have demonstrated that he cannot maintain any logical continuity with what this text is actually stating. Now, notice in the last section of the text, the son, after he completed his work, he was exalted. And this is exactly what we see evidence of in our Lord's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, when he states, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Greek verb rendered had in our English translation of John 17, 5 is the verb icon. And it indicates that the glory that it was spoken of in this text, was simultaneously had by the Father and the Son. In other words, this was a glory that was shared. The Son and Father shared this glory. 
And although there are many examples of how this word is used, I'll give you a few words, a few uh, verses in the New Testament to uh, exemplify its meaning. In Mark 8, 7, we read, They had a few small fish. In Acts 2, 44, All who believed together uh, were together and had all things in common. Acts 13, 5, They had also John as their attendant. Clearly, the idea of sharing is portrayed in the use of this word, and therefore, if anything, the apostle's usage demands actual pre-existence, not ideal pre-existence. The word translated with in John 17.5 is the preposition para, and it is accompanied with the dative of ought to. This construction indicates that the glory that was had by the Son was had in the very presence of the Father. The BDAG lexicon tells us that para, followed by the dative, means at the side of, beside, or near. Thayer's lexicon tells us that para with the dative means in the company of. In short, what John 17.5 tells us is that the Son consciously pre-existed and possessed divine glory in the Father's presence. Again, ideas, unrealized plans, or thoughts in the mind of God are not personal, and they therefore cannot possess things in anyone's presence. The fact that the Son is petitioning the Father for the glory that he shared in the Father in the Father's presence leaves no question as to his pre-existence with the Father. Now, my opponent may attempt to tell us that the glory of John 17:5 is a sort of metaphorical glory, or perhaps that this glory was only existent in the mind of God. But consider that for a moment. First of all, it's an ex exegetical impossibility as the sure weight of the grammar alone prohibits that kind of conclusion. But secondly, the only way anyone could read John 17:5 and come away with that conclusion is if they approached the text with a pre-existing doctrine and they imposed it upon it. But for a moment tonight, let's consider such an option. God's Word tells us in Romans 8.30 that God has glory planned for his elect. And Ephesians 1.4 tells us that this was planned before the foundation of the world. But can an elect person say in the imperative, God, give me the glory that I had with you? the glory that I shared with you in your presence before the world existed. Well, God forbid, because human finite creatures did not exist, did not have divine glory, and are finite in the, in the sense that they are not eternal. The Son was. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, Hebrews, the first chapter, and we'll start at verse 1. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, Mr. Anderson cannot affirm that the Son as personally distinct from God the Father created the world, because this would obviously necessitate his existence with the Father prior to the Incarnation. However, the author of Hebrews has told us in this passage that the Father created the world through the Son. That is, the Son is the Father's agent of creation. The word rendered through, as utilized in this text, is the Greek preposition dia, and it is in the genitive case. 
According to BDAG, it literally means through or by means of. My opponent can try to obfuscate what this word means, but it means what it means. Uh, look, if I walk through a building, that building must exist. If I drink a beverage through a straw, that straw must exist. If salvation is through Christ, Christ must exist. Now, to remove any possibility from my opponent to try to usurp the clear meaning of that text, I'd like to draw your attention to Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. In this text, it's speaking of Yahweh, and it goes as follows. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, if you can look back at Hebrews, the first chapter, you'll see that the author of Hebrews is making an argument for the supremacy of the Son of God. But the means by which the author makes this argument is by identifying things said by the Father to the Son. And notice Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, which are a quote of the text that I just read from Psalm 102. In this text, God the Father identifies that that psalm is about the Son. The vocative of kurios, meaning Lord in English, is, is utilized here. The vocative case is the case of direct address. That is, God the Father has identified that the Son literally created the world and is both eternal and immutable. Now I ask you, and Dan, and I ask uh, your audience uh, here, when they listen to this, uh, what better testimony of the Son's personal pre-existence with the Father is there than that of the explicit testimony of God the Father himself? I mean, the Father has stated here, again, notice the direct address, that the Son has created the world and is eternal and immutable, and he has identified as much in a subject-object dialogue. And so when we read elsewhere that creation was made through the Son in Scripture, or by the Son, we are to understand that the Scripture says what it means, and means what it says. The text of Scripture attests to the pre-incarnational existence of the Son in spades. We can go to Galatians 4.4, where we read, God sent forth his Son. The verb translated set forth, according to Thayer, means to be sent from a place, that is the uh, a verb exapelstealing. Bedag tells us that same verb means for fulfillment of a mission in another place. This verb demands pre-existence. And when we read elsewhere in the Bible of other people being sent from God, like say John the Baptist in John 1.6, we see an entirely different verb being utilized with an entirely different tense. And that verb does not carry uh, any notion of pre-existence, any indication of it. And so when we read texts like John 6.38, where the Son says, uh, He came down from heaven, we are to understand that He really came down from heaven, where He formerly resided. In fact, that is exactly what our Lord explicitly stated in John 3.13, when, where we read, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Mr. Anderson, I'd like to ask you, as a one Pentecostal, what do you do with these kinds of texts? 
what do you do with John 6.46, which tells us that the Son has previously seen the Father because he came from the Father? How can the Son have previously seen the Father because he came from the Father if the Son didn't exist? How is it that the Son can explicitly say, I came from heaven and then going back to my Father if the Son was never with his Father to begin with? What more could be stated by the Son to convince you of his pre-existence with the Father? I mean, let's just say he did pre-exist and he wanted to communicate as much. In what way could he have done that more clearly to convince you? Listen to these texts. Listen to these texts and the ones that I previously mentioned. Keep in mind. And Mr. Anderson, please explain to me in the audience how the Son could have been any clearer. John 3.31 He who comes from above all above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. John 6.41 I am the bread that came down from heaven. John 6.62 what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? John 8.23 I am from above. I am not of this world. John 8.42 I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. John 13.3 He had come from God and was going back to God. John 16.27-28 For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and I and believe that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. John 16:30. Now we know all Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. John 17:8. I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I mean, John 12:41 even tells us that when Isaiah saw Yahweh. He saw the sun. Now, Mr. Anderson, I know that it is your intention to uphold what you believe to be monotheism. But your assumption of Unitarian monotheism comes at a great price. It comes at the very price of denying the eternality of the Son of God. And therefore, you and your tradition has, in doing so, denied the very deity of the Son of God, whether or not you're willing to admit it. Now, in conclusion, the witness of Scripture is clear, and it states in sufficient detail that the Son of God did in fact exist with the Father personally prior to the Incarnation. And this is why Christianity has historically affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity as the only doctrine of God that satisfies the totality of Scripture. Conversely, this is why the Christian Church has repeatedly refuted and rejected any and all doctrines to the contrary, including my opponent's novel interpretation of modalism. And uh, with that, I'll conclude my opening argument. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, you had two minutes left. A good use of your time. Uh, I'm going to reset my count, my uh, timer now, back to 20 minutes. And with that, James, if you are ready to go, please begin yes, your 20-minute your opening. All right. Thank you very much for allowing me to come on, Chris and uh, Mike. Good to finally talk to you guys in person. Um, I want to start off here real quickly. Philippians two five through eleven. That was brought up. Um, I'm thinking here that it's in verse five, and well, I think we need to realize here um, that Philippians chapter two. This particular passage is pericope here two five through eleven. I know uh, Michael is very confident in his exegesis here, 
Uh, however, I have quotes from James Dunn, several different ones, uh, that would totally disagree with the Trinitarian interpretation. And these people are Trinitarians. So I understand his interpretation of that. However, my point in the negative here today is to show doubt, show uncertainty in his exegesis and his interpretation of these verses. And simply by letting you know there's, there's scholars that do not agree with that interpretation. They interpret the, the, the Carmen Christi 5 through 11 as referring to the abasement of Jesus Christ in his human life. Robert Raymond is a Reformed theologian. James Watt has mentioned him several times before. He's Presbyterian. He says the best way to understand Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's not as understanding Jesus before the incarnation, but in his earthly life. And so this is not an attempt to, to avoid, uh, the deity of Christ. This is an attempt to try to understand this scripture because if, if anyone that's familiar with the Carmen Christi, they will realize that the kenosis since about the turn of the 19th century, has been a great problem with Unitarians that reject the deity of Christ. Now, I applaud Unitarians um, for believing in one person, one God, but they are absolutely wrong. Anthony Buzzard, all these other ones, are absolutely wrong when they reject that Jesus is God. As a oneness Pentecostal, I have no problem with saying Jesus is God, and I accept that that God suffered he bled and he died. I think that is a difference. I can say God was manifest in the flesh. Mike will have to say here tonight that God the Son was manifest in the flesh. And I think that makes a big difference because that wasn't probably uh, the thinking of the early church. Um, however, C.K. Barrett says whenever in Paul we meet the word man, we may suspect that Adam is somewhere in the background. And I think that's how we interpret Philippians chapter 2, is referring to the mind of Christ. That That is what the verse starts off with. Let this mind be in you. Whose mind? The mind of Jesus Christ. And when we are consulting these passages in the New Testament that talk about Jesus, and when Jesus says, I, we have to realize that he is saying that from the standpoint of the incarnation. I, as a oneness Pentecostal or as a Trinitarian, we cannot ignore the humanity or the deity aspect of Jesus when he's speaking. I can't say Jesus spoke from his human nature. I can't say he spoke only as a man uh, because that would be ignoring the inseparable union of deity and humanity or, or spirit and flesh. Um, I'm not sure if um, very many of you have heard of uh, R.P. Martin. He was the... Uh, he wrote the book Carmen Christi uh, of Cambridge University. He tells that there is nothing grammatically that prevents one from taking the position that the hymn describes Christ's abasement here on earth, nor is there anything of necessity in the construction of the strokes that demand a pre-incarnate son. There can be two stanzas in a verse, especially when we're talking about Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is a hymn to the church. Uh, some say this is a hymn sung to Christ as God. However, um, as Dunn points out, it's probably better to say hymns to God, praising God for Christ, because uh, in the first century, in the second century, um, people were recognizing, praising God for Christ. There was not even an inclination of the Trinity at that particular point. Um, uh, Jerome Murphy O'Connor, another Trinitarian, says this passage as a kenosis by Jesus from a heavenly realm results from a particular doctrinal presupposition an acceptance that is facilitated by the dogmatic understanding of Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Um, I think we can simply understand this from the standpoint of, of Paul's writings elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where it says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became 
poor. Now, I don't think our interpretation here is pivotal, pivotal in the sense that, well, if we take that this uh, is referring to the basement of Christ, Mike doesn't have a trinity. Now, I don't, I don't think this uh, is that type of text, and nor if it's referring to the incar- uh, before the incarnation, the one that's Pentecostal view is out the door. Uh, I have another good friend of mine, Jason Dooley. Michael knows. He interprets this passage much like Mike does, and I'm not I'm not, I'm not truly decided if it's the abasement of Christ or if it's referring to before the incarnation. Oneness and Trinitarians are both divided on this issue, and I don't see this as a point, um, that would particularly be, uh, persuasive one way or another. Uh, but it says there in Philippians 2, form of God morphe, that's referring to the external appearance, that which meets the eye. Notice that Jesus did not look like God. To look at Jesus, they did not see, oh, hey, there's God. But the external appearance of God is Jesus. John 1 and 18, Colossians 1 15. Uh, robbery, hypargamos, is a thing seized or held fast. Uh, this is not speaking of some, some, some time before the incarnation, in my view, uh, before the incarnation, because God had no more faith. He had no form. It's speaking of the adult Jesus choosing to be humbled and die as a man and a slave to mankind. It said he made himself no reputation. Kaneo, it means he emptied, he made void, he negated. Um, uh, the 19th century Unitarians translated this as a literal emptying. Uh, personally, I, this could be metaphorical. It's figurative ending. I think Paul's other uses of this verb uh, are metaphorical. It talks about the form of a bondservant. This is what's crucial here is that he became and in time took the form of a servant. The external appearance, again, the same word, morphe. Uh, the likeness of men means a similarity, a copy, the outward resemblance. And if you'll notice there, there's three verbs, making, taking, and coming. And all have Jesus as the subject, every one of them. All of them have Jesus. And again, we cannot separate Jesus' deity from his humanity. And this is exactly what's going to happen here in this verse uh, if we ignore his humanity. His death was not forced upon him. It was caused by, it wasn't caused by someone else, but Jesus willingly gave his life. No one took his life, he said. Jesus was the causal agent of these verbs. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, the point of death. And that word appearance, schema, uh, can be known, the unique nature. Both schema and morphe refer to that which can be known by the observation of others. Uh, but the word schema there differs from morphe is that it, it's intrinsic and essential difference from that which is apparent and superficial. So I'm not just saying I'm, I'm using morphe only as Jesus' humanity there and uh, the form of God. But he was in the form of God, but inwardly he was God. Um, I mean, his deity, we, I don't believe in divine flesh, and so that which made God was the deity, it was the spirit that indwelled him. Um, I don't think it was a given or an inherited deity either. Um, but his appearances as a man comes from the fact that Jesus was a man. And I, I, I don't think we can, um, I think it's better to, to understand the Carmen Christi there as his uh, role as a human abasement. And again, there's Presbyterian, Reformed, Trinitarians, Oneness people, uh, that, that, that suggests the same thing. Now let's look at John chapter 17 verse 5 here. Um, and now Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had at your side before the world existed. Uh, the King James, with thine own self, with that, with that glory, the NRSV, in your own presence with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. Now, 
I don't. We cannot uh, isolate this this passage and leave it freestanding. And this is exactly what I, I've seen happen in certain debates where we try to to zoom in on John seventeen five and we totally take it um, out of the the context of the surrounding chapters. John 17 is connected with chapters 14 through 16 because Jesus said in John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, he's referring to what he had just said. But in ancient times, prayers were frequently used in, in farewell discourses. In fact, if Jesus uh, would not have prayed, he would not have been a real man. Jesus had to have prayed. In fact, he probably even learned um, the Torah. He, he had to learn the alphabet. There are several emphases that you have. We have to understand about the upbringing of Jesus. He recited the Shema. He would attend a local synagogue. I think the Bible even talks about him having tassels. He went to Passover an, uh, annually. He was familiar with temple. He was he tithed. He probably uh, was um, involved with the purity rituals. Um, he was. Uh, in every way that we could think of him as a man, except that he was God. And, and most people did not even realize that until uh, it was too late when he was ascending. Um, but he was Jesus would have been familiar with prayer since he was a small Hebrew boy. And the notice in John 17, Jesus is on the way to Calvary. And indeed, John qualifies everything in 1632, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 32, by saying, The hour is coming. And indeed, it has come. Now, in John, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascended are understood as one continuous event summarized in the phrase glorified. So you can see glorification and glorified as a circumlocution for all of those works, for all of those events. Because it's clear in John 13, 1 through 3, where Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this World, And you notice in the same verse, Jesus speaks of being alone there. He's ta- not talking about another person left this one person, but he's talking about being powerless there because the Father is with me. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And, and the prayers of Jesus were to teach and instruct disciples that they may have peace in the world. Because he looks up after he's praying there and begins to pray to the Father again, the hour has come. 17 and 1, that's repeated again. Because Jesus was not literally on Golgotha's hill. Okay, we have to understand, Jesus is speaking proleptically. He's speaking figuratively in this passage. Because he said the hour has come, but... Question, was Jesus really at Golgotha's heel? No. At this point, he was in his dialogue. Jesus is speaking proleptically of the hour that was really to come. Uh, in fact, the, the Hebrew prophets always, uh, many times, wrote of things uh, in the perfect tense expressed in the English as the past tense. And you can see as an example, um, in Acts chapter 8, Philip has to translate Isaiah 53 for the eunuch. The eunuch is seeing this, this stuff as past tense, and he says, no, this is predictive prophecy of Jesus. Um, but even the Day of Atonement was used by the authors of Hebrews to show the redemptive foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Isaiah 53 talks about that. Um, now, in this sense, God, the crucifixion preexisted because the book of the book of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, um, waxes eloquent on taking the the uh, the Day of Atonement and the Tabernacle plan and totally shows how it all is wrapped up into Jesus. And so in this sense, even the crucifixion preexisted. Uh, by the way of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Jesus will bring glory to the Father. Because of his death, Jesus prays for his disciples to be preserved from evil. So even the conversation, the words that are Jesus is talking about, these are earthly 
These are earthly tones here. Uh, we're not talking about pre-existent glory. Um, he speaks of the of glorifying the Father through the death and exaltation. The Son and the Father here are one in will and purpose, just as the disciples should be in their mission to the world. Because, see, Jesus' prayer anticipates Jesus being raised on the cross. It contributes to the climax Going to God. In John 11, 41 through 42, uh, Jesus prays for the benefit of those standing near when needs of people are in view. And he's doing the same thing here in John 17. He does that in John 12, 27 through 28. Uh, he does the same thing here in John 17. And when we understand these prayers in light of this, not only do we see this prayer emphasizing Jesus' obedience to the will and the plan of the Father, but also to his suffering. And these prayers exhibit Jesus as God in human form, experiencing the psychology of approaching the hour that was to come. And in this, Jesus showed and experienced a range of psychological function. Now, what exactly is the glory that Jesus is talking about here? Mike wants it to mean the glory of the Godhead that's shared between two divine persons with their own rational will and consciousness. They're shared with the, with the first person with the sex, with the, with, the, with the next. But the context will not allow that. In John seventeen twenty two, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So whatever that glory was, Jesus had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Jesus also gave this glory to his apostles. Apostles. He gave it to his apostles. And given that context and them of John, we see that this glory is the glory of the cross. It's that completed glory. And it's, that's, that's intended in John's whole theme about glorification before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 and 8 talks about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1, 19 through 20, Jesus was the perfect Lamb slain. Um, and, I, and I know um, Mike here is going to want to talk about this, the parasoi, the glory that I had with the Father, with thee, I'm sorry. Um, personally, I, I, up front, I'll tell you, preexistence, as far as Trinitarians understand it, I believe, is first clearly seen by the Greek apologists in the second century. The Hebrew writers, the writers of the Bible in the first century, did not have a Trinitarian idea of preexistence. Um, it was not a Jewish idea, except in the sense of God's manifestations, his attributes. There was literary personification of those attributes. They did not have an idea that what Trinitarians are uh, came to espouse, especially given the second century. Um, but Jesus ta- speaks of the glory he had with the Father, para data there, alongside of, before the world, the cosmos, the orderliness of the universe ever came into existence. And we gotta really bear that in mind. God not only spoke the cosmos into existence, but he creatively spoke forth redemption, words that find their fulfillment in Christ. Now, anything that exists before the cosmos must exist outside of time and thus should be understood as an eternal state, not subject to temporal laws, in very much the same way as Jesus being the slain lamb from the foundation of the world, and even the word that was with God in John 1.1. 1, 1. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to have it both ways. The, the only way the Son preexisted with the Father, and the Father preexisted with the Son, atemporally, is as do abstract concepts within God himself. In the one divine mind of the one personal spiritual being called God, because if, if the definitions, the Son personally preexisted the incarnation with the Father, stay the same, I don't have a whole lot of trouble agreeing with that. But the, the term Father depends upon the Son to be the Father, and the term Son depends upon the Father to be the Son. And if this is indeed uh, part of, of Father-Son language, 
mentioned primarily and really exclusively in John, the expressions are meaningless without reference to one another. So I understand the Trinitarian angst here because we get caught up in this familial language of father and son. However, if we're, if we're going to translate that familial language to an atemporal, eternal, timeless state and try to say there's uh, three eternal, timeless persons in some type of fellowship and communion with other, we have dramatically altered the, the idea of a, a God as an actual infinite dwelling outside of time and space. That has no point of reference. Um, but if we're going to use that familial language, I want to ask uh, Michael then, then why isn't uh, it required that there's also a mother? If the father has to have the son, the son has to have the father, and I believe that, then where is the divine mother? Where is she at? In fact, we could probably use the Aramaic version of Numa, which was rendered in the feminine. Um, but this is not all that Trinitarians believe, especially on the father and the son, because Trinitarianism, since it was not a feature of pre-Nicene Christianity, Trinitarians came to define the Son and the Father as two separate persons. James White and Michael Burgos both used those terms, two separate persons, and it's written in the Burgos-Sullivan debate, existing in a loving, communicating relationship atemporally. I want you to understand that. They are advocating that our separate persons existing in a loving, communicating relationship in a temporal space. God is not logically extended to any place. You can, uh, you can go back to, to Aquinas. Go all the way back to Aquinas. And before, God is an actual infinite. He doesn't need to act. I'm not worried about verbs in, in a atemporal state because God doesn't need to act because if God needs to share something with another person, then God is lacking in his character some way. And that's simply unfathomable as we consider God and his eternal nature. Winfred Cordwan in uh, Handmade to Theology notes that something can occur under two very different conditions of existence without either form having to be considered illusory. God's actions are real in two ways, in the temporal sequence as we perceive them in the world under creaturely conditions and in their eternal reality in God himself. They're very real. I'm not saying that the glory that the Son had with the Father is not real or is simply an ideal glory. But when God, before the world ever came to existence, it was real and it was done in the mind and the sight of God. That's how Jesus could say that he had glory with the Father because he really did. It's not illusory. It's not, I'm not trying to say it's, it's a, a, a smoke and mirrors, but we have to understand this that we experience the Trinity, uh, in, in the economic Trinity in time and space. Uh, because if we're going to try to say there's a, a Trinity. Okay. Um, let me move on then. Uh, God himself performs the actions. Uh, Corduan says God is free to act or not to act, and he is free to act in whatever mode he chooses. And that's my point. God is sovereign, and he can and, uh, act in whatever mode. God the Father is an equivalent expression to Yahweh or God. I want to remind Michael that Orthodox Trinitarian believes that God the Son is also an equivalent expression to Yahweh and to God. So we cannot define one concept without reference to the other. Of course, the Son preexisted his incarnation. He is God. Of course, the Father preexisted the incarnation because he is God for the same reason. But the Father is Yahweh, Michael, but the Son is Yahweh. Okay. All right. Um, now, at this point, do either of you need to take a short break, or should we move right into the rebuttals? I'm ready to go. Okay. I'm going to set the timer for 15 minutes. And if you're ready, please begin your 15-minute rebuttal.
Thank you. You'll notice that in JN's presentation, he made an appeal initially to scholars. I didn't do that today. I didn't do that because I'm interested in not what scholarship has presented, but what the Bible clearly presents to normal people who do not have more letters after their name that is in, than, in, than that is in this sentence. I'm interested in what the actual text of Scripture says on a basic exegetical level. Um, Mr. Anderson did not really appeal to the word order, to, to the timing that is employed in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't tell us that being born in the likeness of men was an indication of the Incarnation. And I'd like to ask him that. Do you really think it's not an indication of the Incarnation? If this is an account that is after the Incarnation, then tell us, was Jesus incarnated twice? I mean, you said that the mass amount of scholarship done on Philippians 2 uh, was ambiguous. or That's not what I've read. The scholarship that I've read is vastly in agreement with what I have presented today. And that is because the pure exegesis of that, of that text forces us to a pre-incarnate volitional conscious son who exists with the father. Um, that's just the, the weight of the grammar uh, forces that. And so far as the doctrine of the kenosis, um, those who espouse that doctrine are easily refuted by that, by that very same grammar because of those two instrumental adverbial participles I mentioned in my original presentation. Now, regarding John 17, 5, um, I understand that Mr. Anderson has a difficult time understanding uh, Jesus, whether, uh, as, as Trinitarians refer to him, uh, the son prior to the incarnation without flesh. But what Mr. Anderson has done is demonstrated a logical fallacy. He has begged the question by insisting that you cannot refer to the son prior to the incarnation. That is something he must prove. He cannot simply assume to that. If Jesus is talking about a period in which he was not in an incarnate state, then I have all the evidence I need to go right along and agree with that. And in John 17, 5, Mr. Anderson did not touch the grammar there. He did not touch it. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed? How could you possibly walk away from that text and not believe what it actually says. The grammar, the sheer weight of the syntax alone, forces us to an understanding that the Son was in the Father's presence and shared divine glory. Now, so far as the context, when we get to verse 24, where we see the Son's petition that uh, he, he requests others to see the glory that he has given me, and so forth, and that uh, he has given the glory to uh, the disciples, we have to understand that these may or may not, you know, the word glory isn't uh, unequivocal. It has, uh, these verses have a context of their own, and they do not necessarily mean the same thing. John 1.14 says uh, that we have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten Son. Or excuse me, that may not be 1.14. But the word glory does not simply uh, have one meaning. It has a multiplicity of meanings. And regardless of the meaning in John 17.5, the Son had it, and he had it in shared fashion with the Father in the Father's presence. There's no getting around that. Now, 
He also made an, uh, uh, Mr. Anderson also made an appeal to uh, early Jewish understandings of these texts and early Jewish understandings of pre-existence. Well, I'm not really concerned with what early Jews uh, understood about pre-existence. What I'm interested in is what the Bible clearly teaches. I'm not going to appeal to scholars tonight. I'm going to appeal to the text of Scripture. I don't need to obfuscate the truth of Scripture. I just need to present it to you because it's so clear and so weighty in these matters that it speaks for itself. Uh, and particularly when we're appealing to, to early Jewish understandings of things, I mean, the early Jews didn't expect a crucified Savior who was their Messiah. So I don't think I'm really going to put too much uh, weight into what they believe. Mr. Anderson made an appeal to some philosophical stuff about the eternal nature of Yahweh and whether or not you know time has a bearing there and, and what implications a interpersonal relationship might have on that. Well, you know what? I'm not really concerned about that either, because the Bible doesn't speak to that. What it speaks to is the reality that the Son preexisted in a personal way with the Father. All the peripheral philosophical objections, let's save that for another time, and let's leave that to philosophers. I'm not a philosopher. I'm a Christian layperson. I know how to read the Bible, and I know what it says, and it says that the Son preexisted with the Father in a personal way. Um, J.N. Uh, did not touch the first chapter of Hebrews. He did not touch the grammar that I presented uh, regarding Hebrews 1-2. Uh, he did not touch Hebrews 1-10-12. He did not touch Psalm 102-25-27 because I, I believe that he cannot. I don't believe he can provide a cogent response to these texts because they are so clear and so weighty. And you'll notice that I did not... Uh, even begin to talk about the prologue of John tonight, which I could have done, and I could have went to John 1-1 and provided a, a multiplicity of proof texts exegetically in context that show these very same things. I can go to John 1-1 and I can demonstrate with ex exegetical conclusively uh, that um, in Arche and Halagas, Thai and Halagas, uh, Prostantheon, indicates an eternal distinction between two personal beings because John 1, 1c and the word was God uh, demands it. Um, so Mr. Mr. Anderson really hasn't provided anything substantive today uh, so far as what I have presented. Uh, he really hasn't provided anything substantive uh, and done any justice so far as what the Bible says about the Father and Son. Yes, the the titles Father and Son are relational titles, but we have no indication or reason in the New Testament or in the Old Testament that tells us that these titles are anything but eternal. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're told that the Son created all things. He sustains the very universe by the word of his power. The Son sustains the universe. We see the Father saying things to the Son. You, O Lord, created the heavens and the earth, and, and we see immutability and eternality attributed to the Son, not to a thought in the Father's mind, but to the Son. And so Mr. Anderson may say, well, you know, you can't really talk about the Son unless you're talking about his uh, human nature as well. Well, yes, I can, because that's exactly what the Bible does. 
That's exactly what it does. And um, that is exactly what we should do as well. Now, Mr. Anderson mentioned the Shema. Uh, you know, whether or not uh, Jesus is Yahweh, uh, uh, the Father is Yahweh, the Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh, of course. Absolutely. Of course we understand that. Uh, Trinitarians would agree. We believe that there is one Yahweh, but we read in Scripture that there are three who are identified as Yahweh. And so we bend our knee to that. We don't say there are three Yahwehs, but we say there are one Yahweh. And that Scripture has identified the Father as Yahweh, has identified the Son as Yahweh, and has identified the Spirit as Yahweh. And so we limit it at that. We don't try to take these these uh, revelations of, of divine truth and put them through a philosophical framework um, so that we can apprehend them and totally comprehend them because the scripture doesn't tell us to do that. Um, so far as the, uh, uh, going back to Philippians 2, one, one more point I wanted to mention. So far as uh, the form of God being something external well, Mr. Anderson, you tell me then, what does the form of God look like? Because God is incorporeal. He's not a physical being. So if the form of God is something, if the morphetheu is something external, then <laughs> you better demonstrate that to us. The form of a slave is not something external. It is a mode of function. It is a... Uh, uh, a, a manner of, of existing. It is not a uh, ontological uh, description, and either is the form of God. The form of God is that which makes God God. It is his substance, his essence, that set of attributes that makes God who he is, and that's the very form that the Son was existing. And we're going to see some, a, a real theme in this debate um, wherein we are both going to be presenting our sides, but I'm going to consistently be hammering on the scriptures. I'm not going to make an appeal to scholarship. I'm not going to do, make an appeal to philosophy. I'm simply going to appeal to what the Bible specifically says. Now, you'll also notice that Mr. Anderson tried to uh, obfuscate uh, the, the clear text of John 17.5 by going through the... Um, uh, previous few chapters, but he made no mention of the fact uh, of any of why he was going through those chapters. He could have hit on a, a great number of texts that I had mentioned in the ending of my uh, uh, initial presentation, and he didn't do anything like that. He didn't touch on John 3.13. He didn't touch on John 6.46. And so, Mr. Anderson, if, if you're trying to provide doubt to the uh, positive affirmation of this thesis, then you need to address what I'm talking about. Because the text that I'm bringing up, I'm simply bringing them up. I'm simply reading them aloud. You tell me. Um, how do these things not mean what they say? You tell me. Was the Son in heaven uh, with the Father as he said he was? Um, because the way I read it, it certainly says that he was, and, and I believe it, and I would advise all others to believe it as well. And uh, because of the, the lack of, of substance, frankly, of Mr. Anderson's presentation, I'll end my rebuttal right there. Okay, thank you, Mike. Um, I'm resetting the 
clock for 15 minutes again for James's rebuttal. And James, if you're ready to go, you can go ahead and start right now. Okay, all right. Let me start with Hebrews 1 there. It says, long ago, God spoke to, I'm reading from the new NRSV, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. He didn't, he, he spoke by the prophets. He didn't say son there. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to assume too much, but I'm also, I'm going by what the scripture says. I don't want to create an argument from silence, but it says that he spoke to us by a son in these last days, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. If you have your Bible out, circle the word being, because most translations circle, uh, translated that as person for quite a while. Uh, in fact, there is no plural persons ever mentioned, but it uses the word being. I want Michael to understand what that means and imports to Trinitarian theology. Jesus was the exact imprint of God's very being. It doesn't say nature. The Greek word there is hypostasis, and that can mean the substance, the underlying, the being of it. And so if Jesus is the imprint of his God's being, but yet God's being consists of three persons, um, then why is Jesus only one person? Um, because, it, and I think Hebrews 1 here is referring to um, the mediatorial agency, uh, uh, wisdom literature. You can, uh, Dunn takes that position. But I want to compare it with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 and 15. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him I pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings they are your glory for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth takes its name um uh, I think uh, uh yeah he did he brought up John chapter 1 verse 1 note carefully and you can, if you if you have the MP3, I want you to go back to Mike's last speech. And what did he say? He said the the word in the beginning was the word, and word was with God, and word was God. In RK, in the beginning, harkens back to Genesis one and one. Herman Ritterbos, the Gospel according to John, will, will, will confirm that. And the reason I mention authorities, Mike, is not is because I'm not an authority. I need authority, so I do appeal to them for a reason. But Mike said that there the word was with God as Two personal beings. Two personal beings. And think of this, ladies and gentlemen. These two personal beings are in loving, communicating relationship before the world began. This is nonsense language. Mike has not and cannot explain this. He will not explain it. You cannot try to use the economic trinity to explain the ontological trinity because it will fail. But you have to do that. And, and if you try to explain your economic trinity, that is God experienced as three in time and space, with the with the ontological trinity, which is supposed to be uh, in, the, in the nature and the being of God, uh, how, how does that work? It won't work. It will never work. John 1 and 1, um, let, let's look at that very quick. Uh, in the beginning was the word. That's the exact same in the Septuagint for Genesis 1 and 1. The Greek construction there, NRK, it's the same. It's the noun. Um, uh, noun, dative, I think it's singular there. It's the same construction as Genesis 1 and 1 in the Septuagint. Um, the Jewish monotheistic stance, I think uh, Larry Hurtado talks about this, during the first century was more firm and uh, characteristic in 
during the Roman era. Uh, so we're not – I'm not going to begin to appeal the logos here as some uh, uh, – agent that has its own identity and personality and separate from God's because in many times when the word of God came to people in the Old Testament in the in the in the Memra, uh the the bar in the in the Targums uh we have the Memra. um when the word of God came to them in one place it said heal them Psalms 107 20 Psalms 33 and 6 if we were to ask those Israelite people after the word of the Lord it came and to heal them who healed them they would say God himself and in fact, Jeffrey Lamb from Cambridge in 1976, he gave a strong, he has a whole book called God is Spirit. He completely debunked pre-existent Christology and began to understand. He said the early church uh, took the wrong step. There were three models that the Jewish thinkings were creating. The, the model is a word, wisdom, and spirit. He says that we should have went with spirit. God as a personal spirit being can explain all the subject object distinctions. It can explain everything that we need in the New Testament. When we begin to invoke separate personal beings, separate personal beings, we have left monotheism. We have left it. Um, James Dunn, I believe the Logos is an expression of God. Um, Dunn, John says that John has developed a portrayal of Jesus, and this is from his work here in 2010, the first Christians worship Jesus. He says John uh, develops this based upon traditional material as Mark 650 because John's elaborating rich poetic metaphors used to describe the Logos. John has given the poetic metaphor of God's eminence and its richest, most elaborate expression. John must have assumed that his readers, which were Hebrews, remember, in the beginning, was would think of the word as the way of speaking about God Acting. The word, Dunn says, is the expression of God, the unspoken thought of God coming to a verbal expression. Uh, Dunn is a commentator in the New International Greek New Testament commentary series, and he, his definition of logos is the same one that I'm trying to tell you here today. It's the expression of God. He says, the, hence the opening attribution of creation to the word, that is to the divine fiat. The Word is the self-revelation of God. But if we're going to imagine with the Trinitarians that we have the Word who is God and God, the Father over here, we have two gods that are with each other, and we have Philos' second God. And that's exactly why in the early church, diatheism and then tritheism became an early discussion. But when we're going to realize that the Logos was the expression of God, John 1 and 1 through John 1 18 is trying to, to explain to us. I mean, because you look at John 1 and 18, he is in the bosom of the Father declaring him. H.A. Uh, Ironside says that he is telling God out. That corresponds with one and one, how I'm talking about the Logos. Because he is showing us between one and one and one eighteen that Jesus Christ is human and divine. He does it in 18 verses in a beautiful way. Um, and so I, I don't think that, you know, uh, diminishes the deity of Christ in any way. In fact, Kyle and Deitch in the commentary in the Old Testament on Genesis 1 and 1, and they're, they're commenting on, and God said, these words and are deeds of the essential word, the logos, by which all things were made. Speaking is the revelation of thought, the creation, the realizations of thoughts of God, a freely accomplished act of the absolute spirit and not an emanation of creatures from the divine Essence. It's very important as Trinitarians and as oneness, we construct our theology 
within the confines of biblical revelation, um, we need to forget. Oscar Kuhlman said if we want to get back to a true Christology, we're going to have to cut off some of the things that happened in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries and go straight back to the, the Jewish literature in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and the word was was God and the word was with God. You guys hearing me all right? Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought for some reason uh, I got dropped. Uh, the word okay. was God. The word was with God. Um, I think uh, John is wanting uh, – Mike here is wanting to interpret uh, with God um, or was God as a qualitative sense. Surely he doesn't mean that's exclusively qualitative. Um, D.A. Carson, a uh, commentarian, very smart, very intelligent, he says that uh, with was God, the word was God should be interpreted as definite as a definite force, uh, D.A. Wallace, in his book, Greek Grammar Brown and Basics, says that the definite force is grammatically possible. But then he goes on to explain it using his other other surrounding verses. But I think that is where the Trinitarian interpretation comes in. Um, but the thought of, in, in, the, in the theology of Israel and early Judaism was never of wisdom as separate beings or, or logos as separate beings from God, but they were able to be conceived or, or independent personalities, but they were the presence of God in the world, God himself acting upon the world. So I'm not saying the spirit or the word are impersonal uh, and that they're just some static force. They are God himself moving and acting, and so they are personal. Um, as I said about D.A. Carson, it was a definite um, he also says that in all but one or two more con- peculiar constructions, 1 Peter 3 and 15, pros may mean with only when a person is with a person. So you have to prove that one and one, there's two persons there, and you can't do that based upon the grammar itself. He even says that John may already be pointing out rather subtly, rather subtly, that the word he is talking about is a person. So if it is a person, it's may or it's subtly. And this is not high ground for Trinitarians at all. Um, Proverbs 8 also mirrors the concept that we see here for John as a Hebrew author. Uh, but God became flesh, John 1 and 14, and this is the word who became flesh. Done. Colin Brown said you can't call the word son in John 1 and 1. Uh, but Jesus is from God, God toward us. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, I would, I would also quote 1 John 1, and uh, D.A. Carson also uses this, that the life is with the Father as well. That's the process and the accusative, the same, the same set. Um, let's look at uh, John chapter, well, I'll tell you what, let me introduce, trying to stay organized over here. Uh, a while ago, I was talking about several different things um, about the Son preexistent with the Father. Um, I want you to know that I believe that was actual real preexistence. That is not just some ideal preexistence because it was real and actual in God. It is in God himself, and we can't say it's something outside of God. Even the persons of the Trinity are supposed to be located in God himself. Um, but the whole argument for preexistence of the son as son and father as father requires invention of a non-biblical concept where if we would realize the subject-object distinctions are made inside of time and space. I'm not saying the son did not exist 
prior to uh, the, the cosmos coming into existence. The Son was God himself, ladies and gentlemen. So therefore, Jesus Jesus did pre-exist because that was his deity. The, the Son could not have had someone else's deity because there's only one deity. Now, I did notice in his bait, uh, Burgos's debate with Sullivan that he implied that Colossians 2 and 9 shows that this is a different deity than that of the Father. A different deity. Ladies and gentlemen, how many deities do we have? We have to have one deity or we have not, or we're not talking about one God anymore. The idea of the Son being eternal, begotten, does not come from the scripture, but the 5th century council of Chalcedon, um, R.C. Sproul says numerous heresies arose in the early church to challenge the deity of Christ, uh, and we eventually explained the person of the Trinity in this manner. Son is eternally begotten by the Father. Uh, he is equal to the Father. He's called the Son. The Bible speaks of his being begotten, and then he says, but begetting is not an event in time. That, that's nonsense language. He describes a relationship between father and son. The son is eternally mature and equal to father and also eternally begotten by the father. And he says, quote, this is a mystery because we cannot imagine a timeless state. And, and I, I agree with him. Um, now, the council of Chalcedon said it was not a begetting of time, but the Bible deliberately says it was a, a, a temporal event. It happened in time. Any creed or council that suggests otherwise is not a terminal stopping point, and there are scholars who will say that Chalcedon is not a stopping point. Uh, it was good and fine, but it is not the stopping point. Hebrews 1 and 5 applies time-sensitive words to the begetting of Jesus. These are words that only make sense in a temporal state. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today have I begotten you, or again, I will be, I will will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's unbiblical to argue that the father preexisted incarnation as father, except as an abstract concept. Uh, Dr. Herbert Lockyer, he gives several uh, ways uh, to explain about the father. He gives several uh, what it meant in the Old Testament. But he says the only sense that we know that, uh, to, to which e Israel was, was principally revealed God as Jehovah. God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and the earth, but never, the Old Testament never mentions Father in the sense of the New Testament that reveals him. He had a Father's heart. He loved his only begotten Son. He's the Father of Earth's first Father, but there are hardly any references. The Fatherhood in the Old Testament scriptures are figurative, and they're used by way of illustrations, and even then, uh, the Father is likened to a mother. Uh, Dr. Lockyer defines six ways, as I said, the Father, but the Father... That's referred to Jesus. Jesus is, you can say, a father of eternity, everlasting father, but Isaiah 9 and 6 calls Jesus the father, calls him a son, it calls him a prince, it calls him the mighty God, and this is talking about Jesus. It's talking about God because in, in Isaiah chapter 10, El Gabor, the mighty God, is used to refer to Yahweh. There's only one father, and if, if, if Mike says this is a father of eternity and referring to Jesus, and then he has said we have a father, a person, uh, God the father, another person, then we have two persons that are father in the trinity okay uh thank you james uh at this point do either of you need to take a break or are we ready to continue on with cross-examination i'm good james yes okay Well, James and Mike didn't need a break at this point, but perhaps you will, so I've split this up into two episodes. For cross-examination, Q&A, and closing arguments, uh, listen to episode 38, the next episode of the podcast, uh, for part two of the debate. Uh, until then, 